All right, folks, you know what time it is. It's time for an ad for Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. As always, you can get it for free on the App Store. Page in my rhyme book. Page in my rhyme book. Hello. Yo. This is Ergo. It is indeed. I am Kiss. I'm Damon. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. How you doing over there, Dan? I'm figuring myself out. Don't worry about me. How are you? Y'all good over there? (laughs) Don't look at the man behind the curtain. (laughs) I'm doing all right. Um, As we approach the end of the year, we're excited to be starting something new. Um, For those who are just joining us, uh, we've done a couple of these suites. Uh, First, the abolition suite over the summer, and then the education suite in the fall. And this winter, we are excited to be talking with writers about writing and about our world in our notebook suite. Uh, as always, we need a little help figuring out how to do that, uh, and so we are excited to bring in, I don't say friend of the show lightly, like this this man I would say is like an official friend of the show, a repeat guest, a wonderful person, and a wonderful writer. Folks, Nate Marshall is here. Uh, what's up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it because I feel like, what was it, the first episode we do, like we did live, but then it didn't get recorded for yeah. some episode reason. four of ergo yeah. right we've been making up ever since one <laughs> so it's great that's very funny yeah someday we'll get back to the conversation that we had in like august 2015 um <laughs> yeah i have no idea what it was so maybe we that's already probably did it. for the best if we're being honest <laughs> uh so Nate, let, let's start where we where we always start in this time this moment this season how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world Oh, um, the world is treating me all right. It definitely could be worse. And I'm I'm grateful for a lot of the ways uh, that I'm able to kind of keep going. Um, I think a way that I am treating the world is like trying to commit to like just doing fewer things, at least for as long as this kind of pandemic life exists, because I feel like it's just too much and it's like too, you know, too many Zooms and I'm like bad at converting time zones and I live in mountain time right now. So I, I'm always only converting time zones. <laughs> and so it's just, it's a mess. People are like, Nate, why are you an hour early to this thing or an hour late? And I'm like, cause I don't know when anything is. <laughs> You're not having a lot of like, like a longitudinal mountain time calls. Not a, like people in like Winnipeg and New Mexico on the phone with you, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I don't have a lot of uh, a lot of pull in like uh, Wyoming or whatever is like. <laughs> I don't even know what's like north of Colorado to be honest. <laughs> I did like one thing in Salt Lake City, and that was in quote unquote Salt Lake City, and that was great. But like, there's only but so many things in Salt Lake City. I I imagine that's, I don't that's know. True. That's true. <laughs> well, we're excited to have you here. And we're excited to kick off this notebook suite. Uh, Like we mentioned, we're going to be talking with a whole roster of people who put pen to paper, people who write in different ways. You know, when when we thought about who we wanted to partner with to help co-curate the suite and kind of set the table with us, one of the reasons you came to mind is because, at least for me, I think of the kind of breadth of your knowledge and relationship to the craft, like extending, obviously, you're a brilliant poet, but I think of some of the conversations we've had about other types of writing, whether that's uh, in relation to music or you know novels or essays or uh, just the the comfort that you have and the familiarity you have and the like deep deep appreciation for the craft um, is definitely part of why I wanted to have you in this conversation. That's some light what? gas for me. I don't. Damon's usually the gas upper, but you, no, I appreciate you know, that. that's some personalized gas. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. This is this is cool. Yeah, this is I'm I'm excited to like help sort of co-curate this and just and yeah, and just like help think through. Yeah. Some of the themes, the big themes I'm interested in, not only hearing your opinion about, but but talking to all the folks we we wrangle is 
I think a lot of times we only center writing in terms of performance. Um, so things that are published in terms of audience, readership, if we talk about listenership as a poet, right? Like it's usually about this external exchange um, and coming out of some of the conversations we've had and in some reflecting deeper my own journey, recognizing writing one as a personal tool of knowledge building, right? Like of developing your own thought beyond a gaze. And then also it as a practice and process of like healing, self-affirmation, expanding your humanity, liberation beyond like the collective structural, I'm writing about liberation, but like liberation as an actual practice and process internally. And so for you right now, how is writing aligning with your own healing and knowledge of self and life? Oh, yeah. Damn, that's a good ass question. I think the most recent book that I've written, Finna, has kind of been this thing of, uh, I think what really floats behind that book is me wrestling with my own relationship towards like transformative justice and just like what it means to transform um, and how we kind of make space for that to be a possible thing for ourselves and also then for other people. And um, recently I've been sort of working and I don't know if this will ever see the light of day, so whatever. Um, But I've been working on kind of a novel project that is in some ways based off of this, like, like a moment of sexual trauma when I was like just coming of age and I was like 13 or so. Yeah. Just as a matter of like understanding that moment better and understanding sort of what I was up to, what the other people were who were around me were up to, you know, maybe to like make a little bit more sense Mm -hmm. out of the thing, I guess. Yeah. I love that some of the potential of it is to kind of like, it's not just zoom in, but it's also like kind of magnifying this other way where you can like kind of move through the quadrants, like just see like in a a freeze frame, all the different things happening at the same time and build that out, even if it's not exactly what happened, but you can build that kind of context for it. Yeah, no. And it, it like helps me even like the fictionalizing of things. Right. So to be able to like create a character who is maybe informed by who I am, but there are some key differences allows me to like think through a situation with like clearer eyes than I would if I'm just like thinking about myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in actually, you know, putting the pen to page or the finger to the keyboard, uh, <laughs> how are you seeing growth in knowledge or like your own learning that wouldn't have been able to happen without the process, right? Because I think there's a lot of ways we think about learning from writing as like, I've done research and now let me just share it, right? But that there is actually in the putting it on the page, something else that you are learning. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. When you write and you revise, right? So when you're like sort of wrestling with the writing in a different way, you begin to be able to look at your own thoughts and say, oh, my thinking here is inconsistent. Mm. You know, I say statement A, And that actually doesn't hold true if statement B is also true. So which of those things is not true? Or maybe neither of them are, or maybe, you know, maybe there's something, there's something else that I'm reaching for. Right. So that's for me, like, that's one of the real uses of writing just as like an intellectual practice or as a practice of like learning, you know, I teach, right. I'm I'm like teaching at this college now and my students are doing these like final projects and they have to refer to uh, various texts that they're using, right? This is an English class, right? So they have to refer to the various texts we've read and also pull in other things and whatever. And, you know, I don't know what they'll produce, but part of the idea for me of that is that there's a synthesis that happens when you have to say, read three different things or five different things or a hundred different things and then say, okay, now what do I think about them or about the world that I can use each of these texts to sort of feed into like a new thing happens, right? That's synthesis. That's like writing is for me, like this process of constant synthesis. It's it's this process of like making a sort of new thing happen. Even if that new thing is just like the kind of composition sampling a remix or like a, there you go. a A reconsideration of these other, of like, you know, all the stuff that you have put into your, yourself yeah. into your experience, whatever. You helped me get to a quality question. All right. <laughs> what a team <laughs> that, effort. That, was that, that question was terrible. I appreciate you working through. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I, I, <not. laughs> um, 
So we, we get enough moments where someone's like, "That's a great question." We're allowed a couple, a couple, <laughs> no, I know. From time to time. and like, I, I I acknowledge the terrible ones to make space to get that praise later. That's what I do. You know Good what I'm point. saying? I, 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 you have to to get the real juice. You got to admit, you know what I'm saying? With the shit of sound, mm-hmm. um, that's the word that helps. The synthesis, like the synthesis of contradiction or the synthesis of like varied thought or even sensation. For you right now, what are some of the new synthesis you're finding in this season of life? As a writer, and I'd say as a reader also. There we go. Here we go. All right. <laughs> We're home. <laughs> okay. So so right now, I should say, I'm, I'm teaching this class about like literature in the age of hip hop. And so we're reading a bunch of different things across all sorts of genres. We're reading poems and memoir, like sort of general nonfiction and fiction. And a thing that I'm thinking a lot about is like how much history I I sort of have to know to read these texts well, personal history and like much wider, you know, more expansive things. And also just have like have to, in some ways to be able to like do justice for my students and help them come along the path to like get some kind of reading. I think I have to have like done some considering myself intellectually and really wrestling with some things. Right. Um, like it's not just enough that I've like read a lot of books or whatever, or read these books or whatever, but it's also that I've really like thought about a lot of this stuff and thought about how it situates for me personally in my life and also how it might situate in a larger conversation of literature, of culture, of like the world. I don't know if that's like new, but there are some new ways that it's kind of revealed to me in this, particularly in this course, um, I guess I'm just thinking about that because it's a big part of, you know, when when I'm teaching, it's hard for me to to do a lot of outside reading other than like rereading. Right. How about writing? When you're in the middle of teaching, how does that, how do those play together? Yeah, I do a little bit. I do a little bit. I definitely like take a lot of notes when I'm teaching. I, I know there's a, a lot of writers who exist in the academy or exist in various kind of educational spaces. For me, teaching has always been a part of my writing process. Like, I just understand, like, the tools of my own craft and what I want to do as a writer better when I'm in conversation with other people and helping them figure out how they might enter a text. So it's not that I don't write, but it's, I guess, the kinds of writing that I'm doing. So it's a lot more like pre-work or like early work. It would be really hard for me to say, like, finish a book while also teaching a class just because both are really maybe too similar of like a kind of intellectual demand. Hmm to do at the same time. Shit, I can't do either. It's excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to get to what we're going to do in the rest of the suite, but before we do, and it's similar to some of what we've been getting at here, uh, but just to kind of place the the when of of when we're having these conversations, this has obviously been a challenging year. (laughs) For those listening at home, Nate's eyes just got really, really big uh, and a a nod of agreement. (laughs) And, And like Damon said, the synthesis can be transformative for better or worse yeah has writing helped you make it through this year has it made it harder how is your relationship in this period of tumult that is different from what any of us have experienced before how has that shifted and how has the isolation of this time shifted that yeah that's a good question writing has has helped some specifically like writing that has felt like geared towards something right so i've i've done like right when the murder of george floyd happened and everything was kind of going up all across the country and the world. A few of us did this kind of mutual aid project where if folks donated to a bail fund, uh, we'd write them a poem. That was, I think, really helpful for me and really kind of healing. And it made me feel like, especially being a being a poet and being in some ways kind of far afield from where a lot of stuff was happening. There were protests like where I'm at in Colorado Springs, but um, but yeah, just being a little bit far afield from like my own kind of political homes geographically, it was helpful to feel like I could be of use in that way. Right. So that was, I think, a real like a healing thing for me and hopefully just like a helpful thing in, in a practical sense. But um, even beyond that, I think reading has helped. I think like reinvesting in like texts that I used to love or that I'd love, but I haven't thought about in depth for a long time. And I've also uh, this year really gotten which I've always done, you know, I've always like listened to a lot of podcasts like Ergo and many others, but um, a 
No, you're good. The, inter- but, um, the interrupting air horn is a, is a new feature. So. <laughs> no, I love it. That love was also it. the first time that air horn has ever apologized to. What a, what a like. An apologetic air horn? What a demure, like, sensitive air horn. Beep, 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 beep. Right. My bad. <laughs> See, Daniel, that's like how I know you're both from New York and have been in the Midwest too long. It's like a polite air it's horn. Like we get, yeah, the air horn then like, oh, pardon me, pardon me. If you may. I'll, I'll, I'll see myself out. <laughs> right. Love a Midwest air horn. But, so funny. But no, like uh, the podcasting. So I've been listening a lot to um, conversations with writers. That's one of the reasons I was really excited when y'all approached me about this because it's like, a form I've been really like deeply reinvesting in. And that has fed me a lot, like to hear other people talk about their craft, talk about what they're reading, how they think about those things has been one of the things like driving my own, my own thought for the last bunch of months. Mm. What have you found? Maybe this is like a good sort of transition. I was listening to this one this morning, actually. So this, this podcast called coffee and books. Oh, is it the Mark um, Lamont Hill show? Yeah. So Mark Lamont Hill does this thing, right? So I was listening to the new episode this morning with Michael Eric Dyson. And um, he said this thing that has kind of fucked me up all day (laughs) where he was talking about the danger of black curiosity, right? He has this new book out and he, and where he writes a series of letters to folks who have kind of become martyrs in this way. Right. So Emmett Till, Hidea Pendleton on down. Right. And when he talks about Ahmaud Arbery, he makes, he makes a sort of like intervention that I think is really that has just been sitting with me all day about like Ahmad Arbery was looking at a house that was being constructed, you know, from a place of sort of like curiosity or like, I wonder what this house, whatever. Right. And got killed for it because people thought he was going to rob that place. Dyson made this sort of connection. Like this is why a lot of black folks are like incurious in a particular way, not out of legitimate, like lack of curiosity or lack of sort of intellectual. I'm just going to mind my business engagement. Right. It, right. It's I'm going to mind my business because I understand the ways in which the world will sort of smack me down. You know, I don't know. I've always like had a kind of intuitive sense that it meant something to be both black and curious, perhaps any kind of oppressed person and curious in certain ways. But like that, like crystallized something for me where I was like, damn, like, it's really a miracle. You know, like there's this great old like June Jordan essay that's called, I think like the difficult miracle of black poetry. And she, she talks about like Phyllis Wheatley on forward. And I'm just like, yeah, that shit really is a miracle. Like the fact that any black person has ever in this country, like been like, I wonder what was happening over there. Let me go find out is <laughs> fucking insane. It's like wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, don't, don't go through the door. Yeah. Like d- don't go. There's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> everything but is like, a horror the, movie. Just everything, <laughs> everything. Absolutely everything. Right. Mm. Like all horror movies are just like white people cosplaying black people. Right. That's actually really, this is a, a side note, but oh man, what was it? It was like all these post-apocalyptic movies are like white people having to deal with like what refugees have to deal with. It's like, oh shit, we can't. Yeah live here anymore we got to move through this like unsafe terrain and we only have the things on our backs yeah yeah, yeah. and like one of the questions i'm really interested in getting from from these writers is one are, are are you thinking about this sort of connection between curiosity and danger in your practice but two i guess like just a reflection on like how have those things intersected in in your kind of pathways as a writer because i know for sure like I have, I'd pr- you know, like often out of a place out of, of curiosity, written a thing or asked a particular question or gone down certain kind of paths artistically and been castigated for it, right? Been, been sort of told like, no, that's not what we're doing or or whatever, right? Gotten in trouble in various ways, right? Literally from like the, from like being a, a, in middle school and like writing certain poems, right? And getting the principal like take me into the office and like wait for my mom to come get me off a poem. Yeah. Off a poem, like unplugged the mic. and was like going off. Do you remember the content? I don't even know. I think it was, I frankly, I I think it was like a poem that was sort of like thinking about like the hood (laughs) in this way that my, I think it was my vice principal was just like, this is not how we want to be talking or how we Mm want to be thinking. And, you know, and there's all these kind of like, she, she was a black woman. 
there's all these kind of like hangups in this because the school itself was like very mixed. And so, I, you know, so it's very much, a, I think in retrospect, like a thing of like, you, this is not the stuff you say around mixed company, mm. but yeah, I don't know. I, Cause like, really I was writing that poem. Cause I was like curious. Right. Cause I, I was like trying to see some things, right. Both like learning about language and observing the world around me and trying to distill that in some way. It's always the vice principles. <laughs> like the, yeah, the well, principals got like, some other shit that they're trying to take care of they got paperwork they got meetings and it's the vice principal right. just like why i oughta that's like the that's like why you have a vice principal yeah to just be a dick <laughs> you know? yeah back up and like the assistant teacher same same, same vibe <laughs> I, I have beef with, i love a lot of teachers and i have beef with the like structure of assistant te- anyway this is unnecessary <laughs> In kindergarten, I had an assistant teacher tell me that my drawings were bad because my people didn't have eyebrows. And uh, I've never felt comfortable as a visual artist since. So, yo, like, what? Yeah, what kids? What kind of asshole? I know. Was like, yeah, yo. No, Miss Isaiah, we're coming for you. That was <laughs> yeah. Like, this five year old has no notion of eyebrows. Also, Damn. when was the last time you saw a child's drawing that had eyebrows? Like a stick figure with eyebrows. Like in retrospect, it's right. not even like like I can accept constructive criticism. That is a bad critique. <laughs> yeah, it's like unless you were drawing like The Rock, like, <laughs> who's out here drawing eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that story actually, <laughs> both of the stories actually gets to a, a couple of the, the the questions or themes I really want to pull at. From my own experience, I recognize that I have like a psychological trauma in relation to writing and like a a fear and like self-abusive maladaptive tendencies and recognizing how school and how that creates fraught relationships at home between parents create these, I don't want to be too loose with the word, but I want to say almost like abusive dynamics in terms of evaluation, grading, um, unproductive critique uh, that I think a lot of us are healing from. So a a, a sentence you'll hear a lot of people say is I'm not a good writer in a way that's like self-defeating or like misses the point of the process. And so as somebody who's in Academy, I'm I'm wondering how you have wrestled with that yourself, but also as now an educator Uh, and a, a thread that we can maybe pull at later is how the poetic approach can heal or, or, or play the line between some of those damages and injuries. Cause I heard, hear that in your story, obviously. Sure. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the injury of like graded school writing and how I think it cuts a lot of us off from this practice we're identifying as a way to like synthesize our understanding of the world and ourselves. Yeah. One, and this is maybe like something I can do as a, as someone in higher education, that would be more difficult to do for someone who is in a K-12 space and, and maybe would be, you know, I'd, I'd have to like think about the second and third hand consequences of this. But a thing that I'm able to do is I tell my students, like, look, I'm going to grade you. And I'm like a r- fairly rigorous grader on every assignment, at least in a, in, a, in a literature class. But if you do the work in earnest, I'm not going to not give you an A on your transcript. So we can remove like grading from being this this place where you have a there's a sort of potential of a negative outcome right and it can be a thing of evaluation of being like look this is where i see you at in this moment these are the things that were really promising these are the things that fell short try and prove next time if there is a use to grading i think that is the use right that sort of you know evaluative snapshot rather than yeah, the, the, the thing that can foreclose or open up possibility in the way that a grade on a transcript can. If you have a certain grade, you can't go to law school or go to do whatever it is the thing you want to do afterwards. And like, one, just as a matter of like karmic energy, but two, as a matter of like practicality. I, I don't want you to feel like I could have been a Rhodes Scholar, but Professor Marshall like fucked me up or whatever. Like, just let's take that off the table, right? Do the work. You'll get a grade. Great. But I think for me, one of the best things that ever happened to me in my writing life was the decoupling of writing and reading from school. The fact that like I grew up in a house where my grandma read a lot and had a lot of books and was always like trying to get me interested in reading. And then the fact that I found, you know, writing spaces uh, like the Poetry Slam and et cetera. Um, and then all then the open mics and the, the whole sort of host of things around that 
that didn't have anything to do with school or like what grades I was getting in school were really helpful to me because like I developed an identity as a writer that wasn't about the fact that I got a good grade in it in in school. I, one thing I say is particularly to this idea that you said about even self-identifying as a bad writer. If you look at my book of poems, I don't really consider the things in that book to be poems. I think a poem is actually what happens when like what's in that book hits someone, when some when someone reads it out loud or when a reader mm-hmm. reads it, the thing that happens in their head is actually the poem. Mm. Well, it reminds me there's this uh, Emerson concept of like a creative writing and creative reading working together and the book is the object that sits in the middle. But like neither yeah. happens without the other person. It's this interchange. And the book is just, you know, the way we think of media means medium means in the middle. Like that's what's happening. Both sides are, are interacting with it. Absolutely. And we, you know, if we if we think about, say, music, right, we don't think of the sheet music for the popular song to be the song, even though we understand it will help us approach the song. Mm-hmm. Right. And we also can understand that, like, you know, how Frank Ocean interprets a song would be quite different than how Beyonce interprets it would be different than how Kurt Cobain would have interpreted it or whomever. Right. Even if it's technically like the same song. And so I think approaching writing as a kind of like sheet music rather than as like a a determinative kind of sacred text that sits in the middle of what we have to do is for me really been helpful in a kind of healing thing. And I think it's a, it's a framework that helps students actually improve in their writing. Mm. What helps in that? Well, because I think it opens them up to to say, like, look, I have thoughts, I have ideas, I have, like, arguments that I want to get across. The writing is a way of doing that. It's not the way, hmm. right? But it's a powerful way to get those things across and to also just help me figure them out. You know, working with a student on her thesis, I'm like, you're going to have to write to figure out what you think about the thing. Because right now you have a bunch of thoughts, but they don't, they're not cohering into anything actually usable. And that's probably not going to happen until you actually start trying. Right. Yeah. I think this like comes from the French, but like essay, like literally kind of means or whatever, like the sort of French word for essay that Montaigne was sort of working was like to experiment. Right. Mm. It's like a little experiment. It's like, you're just trying, you're just trying. (laughs) (laughs) That's like, that's like how I feel whenever I write something, when I'm like, again, like trying to shield from that unfair criticism. Like, Hey, I was just, I was just trying. I was just trying out a little right. thing and that there is some like right. freedom in that. I mean, it's messed up. Right. But it, cause it, cause it sounds like a cop out, but it's like, you know, I, I wrote that uh review of like Obama's book. Right. If I were to write another review of that book today, it would probably be quite different. I could write a hundred different reviews of, of that same text and come up with different thoughts. Now there would be like some commonalities cause you know, I'm a single person, but like that was one shot that I took at trying to encapsulate this, you know, this large set of ideas and history and experience and whatever. Right. That's so interesting. It's, it's almost the same thing as what one of our past guests, not as part of the suites, but we just did this listening party with the mind and he was talking about Mm. his songwriting process. um, And he'll have kind of like a general approach or theme that he wants to touch on or a sound instead of trying to revise one song, he'll make five different attempts and then decide which one feels the most like correct or accurate or true to oh. what he's trying to do rather than like go back in. Like his editing process is to try multiple different times yeah. and then choose from that and mold from there. Um, so that sounds, these little experiments, yeah, it sounds like a very similar type of thing. I know poets who do that actively and I've had students do that as like a, a sort of revision exercise. I mean, frankly, like, there's a poem in Finna that is a version of a poem I tried to write when I was 16. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, yeah, that's absolutely a thing that happens, right? Where I'm trying to like encapsulate a particular idea or talk about a specific situation. Like I did one version of it and it was cool. There were some good things about it, some things I didn't love, but I didn't feel like I quite nailed it. And I'll go back, right? Yeah. 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 So we got a few themes, radical act of curiosity and the danger connected to that the kind of healing of the relationship to writing and and some of the violence of critique, you know, the poem is what happens in the reader's head. I love that. And and these will be some of the questions and things that we bring to the different conversations in this suite. Are there any other questions or themes that thinking about who we're going to be talking to over the next few weeks, you want to make sure we ask them or or the things that you're curious about hearing from these folks? Yeah. You know, writers, I think we often are asked a lot of questions about sort of audience 
um, especially kind of imagined audience. And I think especially with sort of writers who are minoritized by virtue of race or gender identity or sexual orientation or whatever, there's always this question of audience, right? Because there's this sort of, at this point, like ludicrous idea that these things don't sell or have a limited possibility for audience or whatever. And so I'm not really interested in dealing with that, but as a kind of reframing of that question, I'm curious about how folks think of their work as being in service of like particular either communities, specific people, ideas, et cetera. There's something fruitful there, right? Because if yeah. if you're, let's say you're like a, a journalist, right? Like you're, you're writing um, as a means of like articulating news, who you think of as like the necessary consumer of the news, who can be helped by, by getting these things, by accessing them, by reading them, et cetera, and who can be harmed by it. Like, depending on your answers to those questions, you could produce very, very different pieces of the same idea. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about that. Like, who do they see their work in service of, if anyone, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe they don't. The answer to that almost names how one positions themselves, uh, which gets to a little bit of like one of our, our meta themes or questions over the years around subjectivity and the the critiquing some of the institutional objective voice that have been like kind of placed in some of these different media or medium. Uh, But to that question of service, I feel like I know in someone who knows you, but how are you seeing that service and how has maybe even being in a different physical place and space changed or evolved your imagination of, of, of who you're trying to feed? Oh man. Every piece is a little bit different. On some level, at the center of all my work is a sense of like myself when I was going through my sort of artistic and political formation. So that'd probably be like roughly ages like 12 to 16. I think of like, what are the kind of texts that would have been helpful to me in that moment, right? That I wish I had had some access to. And that for me is like at least a bit of how I consider what are the best ways to spend my time as a writer to the question of like, how does it shift when you're in like a different geographic locale? Um, You know, there's, there's absolutely like a black community that exists here in Colorado and in Colorado Springs. It's much smaller than Chicago's. It has. And also like, because of the kind of nature of the place that Colorado Springs is, which is to say a place that is very influenced by the military, like over 20% of the like employment, in Colorado Springs is like active duty military. And so, and that is like, I would say like a a significant majority or at least a significant part of the population of like black folks specifically. And so, you know, given those things, like the community has a different set of values or a different approach to those values. Like one thing about black Chicago is it's, it's big and it's vast and it's so diverse that within that there can develop all of these kinds of petty beefs or like small kind of misconceptions, right? Because you could be like, you're mad corporate, like you worked for the dailies, you worked for Rom, like you worked for Lori, whatever, or you from the West side, ain't no grass on the West side. I don't even like it over there. Or like, oh, y'all are the hundreds. Is that even a part of the city? Like that shit is the suburbs to me. That shit is Gary, Indiana, whatever, whatever. And you just can't do that. You're just literally arguing with one person. I mean, like you're, <laughs> right, right. you're on the outside. It's you're like, from over there. Right. there <laughs> there's just not that many folks. And so it just means a different thing in a way that I actually find like really kind of productive, you know? And I think about like, even the kind of useful intervention that I may have in a classroom, like, you know, today in, in class, we were talking about, um, about Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, first memoir, The Beautiful Struggle. And he sort of talks about his father, you know, starting black classic press and being a member of the Panthers and all this kind of stuff. And so we're in class, like talking about Comatel Pro, talking about the murder of Fred Hampton, you know, talking about the history of black people using the military as a way to sort of prove citizenship, particularly in, in the, the context of the United States, et cetera. Right. And these are things that like most of these students who are predominantly white, um, overwhelmingly non-Black have never had to think about, right? Though they do absolutely shape their worlds just as much as they shape mine or yours or whoever else's. 
that seems to me like potentially a really useful intervention, mm. right? Or even even just the the nature of what it means for them to have to, for, for you know, at least the length of time that they're in the course, see me as as a sort of power broker or deal with the work of Jamila Woods or Roy Kinsey or Master Ace Rakim, uh, Nicki Minaj, like having to think about those people as sort of as literary and as like producers of knowledge. Yeah, not just producers of entertainment. Right. Yeah. Right. We talked about the sheet music or we talked about, you know, the this blending, this notion between knowledge and entertainment. Um, and there's a way hip hop is really self-referential and like breaks the fourth wall. And so over the last 15 to 20 years, I feel like hip hop media teaches us a lot about how it's produced and published specifically. Uh, and so I kind of want to mm. use that as a metaphor, particularly like the independent rapper or, you know, even also like tribe shit, like, you know, these record company people are shady. Where, where are the parallels or, or comparisons and contrast between, I think, our imagination of how someone were to publish music um, and some of the, the technicals and the processes and the systems of how literature is published? It's not seen as, as, as popular as it like once was in the mid 20th century. So I'm sure there's a lot of like shadowy shit going on. In this yeah, Amazon like what's driven the like world. the like 360 deal? <laughs> yeah, yeah, your advance. Yeah, Craig Kalman <laughs> of Atlantic version, but for the literary. Yeah, world. or is there some like independent Rockefeller pivot gang type shit happening? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, well, first off, yeah, I think similar to music, uh, the internet turned everything on its head in a different kind of way because people then were able to like reach audiences directly, and and frankly, like reach audiences at a scale that would have been previously unimaginable to many folks. You know, so I think about the rise of someone like say Rupi Kaur, you know, or even like, you know, a lot of folks affiliated with like button poetry, Sarah Kay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The idea that, that like a million people could have watched something that they had that thousands of people across the world, right. Across like literally dozens of countries would know and be invested and be like willing to, to not only listen, but to pay for what these people are producing is a thing that has really reshaped how the literary world has to kind of operate. Um, I think also similarly to the music world, there's a bunch of different record labels, but there's actually like three or four companies. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, there just are. And, and right, actually right now there's a potential merger, which may happen between, um, I think it's, it's Penguin Random House, which is already a kind of merged thing. And uh, one of the other ones like, who's escaping me right now, whatever, full disclosure, like Penguin Random House imprinted them like published Finna. So like, I don't know. Thanks for that check. But yeah, like if that merger goes through, then that has terrible implications for writers, especially writers of color, especially queer writers, especially emerging writers. Like basically if you're not like James Patterson or JK Rowling or whoever, like it's, it's a bad deal for you, right? Because it means like when you have a book that you want to sell, there's fewer people to go sell it to. Also, like it'll, there'll be a, presumably a cascading effect where if you merge two sort of big companies, then, you know, maybe you find that the marketing department can get smaller because they're not competing know, against each other in the same way. And yeah, exactly. Right. And you, you know, where you had, if you had two people doing this kind of job before, and now you have four because this thing is merged. Maybe you don't still only need two people. So two of them leave. Right. And so it pushes people out of the field in a way that's really concerning. Right. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I think that we could talk for days about the way that companies lack of either interest or ability to transition into what the internet did as a disruptive force, you know, killed a lot of magazines, uh, killed a, a lot of publications, you know, and it's still doing that, right? There's, you know, there are writers today, like well-known writers getting laid off everywhere, but also there's, there's a lot more space for writers to reach folks all over the world independently than there ever really has been, whether it's, you know, a platform where you can publish directly to people in a paying or free format like Substack, or it's, you know, folks doing sort of self-publishing things. So I think about, um, Kanwani Fidel out of, out of Baltimore mm -hmm. dope guy. Who's been like doing his thing for years and like really selling thousands of bo <laughs> books, like, but just for himself, which 
you know, which is a totally different thing, right? You know, that's like what Master P was doing in the late 90s, right, early right. 2000s, where he was making six to $8 off of every CD. Whereas if you're, you know, the hottest artist on a major record label, you're getting 13 cents. It's, it's literally splits are that drastic. Yeah. It's they're that intense. Right. And so I think all those, whether you're, you know, rhyming or singing or, you know, writing for the context of a book, we're all sort of in this media landscape. And so we're all kind of subject to a lot of the same forces and a lot of the same, you know, silly, similar mm-hmm. shady kind of dealings. Right. Yeah. All right. What else do you want us to uh, ask these people? The sort of last thing that I'm thinking about is where does freedom exist in your writing practice Mm. and where is freedom like a helpful frame or a helpful, like imaginative space to step into. Mm -hmm. Right. If, if at all. Right. Cause I I think that there's at least my, my impulses is that the way a poet or a fiction writer might deal with that would be different than say the way like someone that is doing nonfiction would deal with it. Right. Both in terms of like what you're documenting, but also in terms of like your own practice, right? There's a lot of reasons why graduate school is whack and not for everybody. But one of the things that was helpful for me is it gave me the freedom to say that writing was the most important thing that I'm doing. That was like a really useful freedom for me to offer myself, right? Um, and to still be able to like, pay for my life and not sort of be a burden on my parents who, who like really couldn't have even paid for my life or, or whatever. I'm yeah, I guess I'm just like curious about folks relationship to freedom as it relates to their work, either in terms of their approach or their subject matter. We're going to do the thing again, where we make you answer the question you want us to ask them. Um, oh, okay. You mentioned that in regard to like grad school and the freedom to write, but whether it's actually in the craft part of it or just what it's opening up for you, where does freedom or just like openness even exist for you right now on the page? Yeah. I think all the time about that um, interview, it's I, this, it's either Asada Shakur or um, damn, what's her name? Uh, or Nina Simone. I, and I cannot remember which, which one it is. Like I can, I can hear it, but I can't like mm-hmm. hear which voice it is. That's a fair confusion. I'll, I'll let that <laughs> yeah. stay. I was, I was, Really hoping it was going to be like, it's either like Asada Shakur or like Billy Collins. I can't remember. It's like some like, <laughs> random funny it's like two people who are really. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there's this point where like in the interview, um, they ask about freedom. Oh, it's Nina. Yeah. Yeah. It's Nina. Right. Right. And she's like, I don't really know. I've never been free. But I guess to me, what freedom is, is no fear. Yeah. Well, what's free to you? What's what free I, to me? Yeah. Same thing it is to you. You tell me. No, no, you tell me. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's just a feeling. It's like, how do you tell somebody how it feels to be in love? How are you going to tell anybody who has not been in love how it feels to be in love? You cannot do it to save your life. You can describe things, but you can't tell them. But you know it when it happens. That's what I mean by free. I've had a couple of times on stage when I really felt free. And that's something else. I'll tell you what freedom is to me. No fear. And so I think a thing I've been sort of thinking about recently is how to write into that I don't know. Whether that's like a speculative thing or whether that is a thing about, okay, well, what work do I have to get to to like get to a place where it's possible to know, right? Mm. So so what work do I have to do to like sort of dismantle unfreedoms, right? The Martina Spada poem that I quote all the time, uh, Imagine the Angels of Bread, he says like, the abolition of slave manacles began as a vision of hands without manacles. Yeah, I, because I'm a poet and because I'm a poet who like finds a lot of value in like traditional form, at least in some relationship to traditional form and learning about form and kind of manipulating form. I do think about the way that certain frameworks or certain sets of rules can actually open up a kind of unexpected freedom. If I have to write a sonnet, you know, where I only have so much space and I have to hit certain things sonically, then I'm going to say something in a way that I maybe never intended to say it to make it fit in there. And, you know, that does strike me you know, when I think about like some of our movements and like what it means to say, 
like what it means to be in community with people is not just to be sort of in proximity to them or even to just be in like relationship with them. But it is to say like, we have a sort of like shared context or shared framework for how we're going to like be with each other and care for each other and, and all those things. And that, that strikes me as like a poetic form. Mm. There's a real intuitive relationship for me between form and freedom that I that I've been thinking a lot about, just specifically, I guess, around poetry, but perhaps around all kinds of writing. I think that really parallels very easily to the from 14 to 16, like the 16 bar rap verse. Right. Like, I think there's a lot of I wish I had an example off the top of my head. But I think there's a lot of like language that became things that people say that just was because it fit the the rhythm of one line, right? Like it wasn't something that like people stay. I'm trying to think of it. It's a lot of New York cats that like, ah, damn. Yeah. Damn, I wish I could, I wish my, my hip hop brother. Like it would, it would have been more syllables if, if, yeah. if it was free form. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's very. Yeah, funny. absolutely. I mean, you know, I think about the incredible like intellectual intervention of um that um Rick Ross and, and uh, Andre 3000 songs 16. Yeah. Right, 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 right. right. That song is so ill because it's basically just a craft essay. It's a writing mm-hmm. prompt. Yeah, yeah. Right. They're, they're just like, they're like, well, what if what if 16 bars was not a name? Like, I'm, I'm like, these niggas are nerdy. This is, this yeah. is nerdy. And you know how but gassed like, they were when they came up with that, too. Like, they were hyped. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> like, and guess what? We're going to write more than 16 bars. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, but uh, yeah, it's it's that or it's like uh what is it most deaf in mathematics where he's like um I got 16 to 32 bars to rock it but only 15% of profit ever see my pockets, right? Like rappers stay thinking about form in these ways and they're always convinced that their breaking a form is a thing that helps them achieve freedom. But often it's funny cuz then they become folks who sort of police other people breaking the form that they've established. Mm, mm-hmm. People don't think about the way that the hip hop song or just the notion of having a song that basically has no singing in it is this kind of perversion of the form of the pop song or the popular song. Right. But now those same dudes will kind of decry. Man, they're singing on the hook. <laughs> right. All this younger generation for, for reinvesting in melody yeah. or for even departing from from any any semblance of traditional song structure or 16 bar structure. Yeah, you know who sang on the hook? All of the singers. They all <laughs> sang on the hook. <laughs> the temptation singer. Sang on the hook. So, <laughs> James Brown oh, yeah. sang on the hook. Like Aretha <laughs> sang on the hook. Like, come on, bro. Rick James. All right. Rick sang. James definitely sang on the hook. <laughs> yes. All right, last last question. I feel like we got yes, yes. what we need to work with going into these other conversations. Thanks for helping us do our job better. Um, and I think this will be maybe the the last question that we ask all the guests. What's the best piece of advice you've ever got about writing? And what's the worst piece? Um, and that can be either like how it applied in the writing part about it or also just like extrapolating out into the rest of life and into concepts of freedom and imagination and all that stuff. The worst piece... I got for sure is the idea that writing cannot be taught. I don't think it's easy to teach writing. And I don't think it's like, it's not kind of one-to-one. It's not like how you might be able to sort of teach math. (laughs) Yeah. Teach someone like, okay, here's, here's Arabic numerals. Like here's how you count from zero to nine. And then here's how you go from 10 to 20 or whatever. But like, you can absolutely teach writing and you can absolutely teach people things about writing that would be helpful to them. What was the the context or the, the intention behind that statement? <laughs> they just didn't want you to get paid anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I, I think it's, well, I think one, it, it came from a writer who like taught for a while in the Academy and then sort of opted out. And so like, I actually want to name that like, that is in some ways like a particular kind of privilege. Like I can't afford to not teach i also happen to love teaching and think of it as a part of my writing practice so i'm lucky in that respect but i can't afford to not teach you better be able to teach writing (laughs) right like it's actually my trade like not to be like sort of precious about it but the shit is my job but also i think that it's always always super useful to be in meaningful conversation about writing and craft part of what i what i fear is sort of behind that notion of you can't teach writing and and all this is 
a desire to sort of retreat from a community of writers, or at least from like a sort of wide ranging community of writers. And for me, like part of my practice is like, I just believe that I should be in conversation with people about the work I'm doing. And I think like the work I'm doing has a diminishing value if I'm not in meaningful conversation with folks. And and that conversation doesn't always get to be, and actually shouldn't always be, carefully curated by me and who I happen to be friends with, right? Who I happen to like get along with or feel connected to or whatever. I mean, if you didn't want to co-curate the series, Nate, you could have just told us. No, no, no. This is no, great. This is great. No, but that's exactly, but yeah. no, I hear what you're saying. So that that's my worst piece. Um, every time anyone has like told me to like read some shit is probably the best piece. <laughs> um, I've had people like reframe that from just reading to like experiencing. So thinking about like listening to music with a sort of critical ear as a part of one's reading practice, going to museums, having meaningful conversations with friends or with strangers, like all of those things. Like I think about all that stuff as some extension of my reading practice, right? Reading is is important and is and is vital if you want to be a writer, but it also is like, one way of gathering information and yeah. So the folks that have both encouraged me to read and encouraged me to like read the world broadly to just pay good attention to the world have been, I think deeply helpful to me. Mm, That's beautiful. Um, How can folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found? You could just, I, I, that sounds weird. I was going to say you could just Google me, but (laughs) that sounds ridiculous, but like you can, and like my stuff will come up. I'm on social media at Illuminate Mike's all one word, Illuminate M-I-C-S, Nate-Marshall.com. Get the book. Yeah, That's, sure. Get the book. No, you should yeah. get the book. I really, yeah, like, for, <laughs> to be fair, I really like the book. But yeah, go out, get Finna, listen to the audio book, which I really enjoyed. Here's a not writing question, but uh, where people can find you in the ways you want to be found question. How much tension do you feel to balance the holding on to the Illuminate mics versus like the <laughs> external push to prof- professionalize your social media platform. Oh no, I don't care. I don't care. If there's a point. It's Illuminate mics like, until like, the wheels fall off. If, <laughs> until the lights go out. If it, until it's yeah, no longer illuminated. So <laughs> we dim the mic. <laughs> when it stops being Illuminate mics, I won't be on social media. It's like, that's just the end of it. All right. Like, we're done. It's good to know what your non-negotiables are. <laughs> yeah. um, we're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm Damon underscore AF. And we are excited to start our notebook suite talking with writers, thinkers who are reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace.